If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Well, hello, friends, neighbors, and countrymen. Lend me your ears, because this is yet another incredible episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I am one of three hosts. My name is Keith Childs. I am the author of several books, including um, most recently, Jesus Unveiled, Forsaking Church as We Know It for Ecclesia as God Intended, and the forthcoming Jesus Undefeated, um, which is be about uh, the afterlife and hell and all that good stuff. And um, oh yeah, baby, it's going to be beautiful. And uh, I'm also joined by my co-host Matthew and Jamal. Hey guys, hi friends. My name is Jamal Javanji, and I just wanted to let you know that I am the likeness and image of the living God here on the earth, here in human flesh, (laughs) as 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 are all of you. And the co-host, my other co-hosts are are the same thing, and so are the listeners. And I'm also a life coach by profession in my day job. And I also am the author of the most recently released book through choir called Living for a Living, which is really just about transitioning from living to make money for survival to living to provide, you know, healing for the world through the accomplishment of our passions and desires and how that can also lead to resources that enable us to do our work in the world. So that's me. Glad to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour with you guys. And I'm Matthew DiStefano. Uh, according to Jamal, I am the likeness and image of Christ. <laughs> according, <laughs> according to some of my reviewers, I am one with the devil. So I'm not sure where I stand. But uh, I do know that I have a, a new book coming out in October, October 10th, called Devoted as Fuck. And so uh, uh, there we go. Waiting for that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to release this book. Uh, I just got uh, from choir. I just got back the um, the edits and and the layout, and it's uh, it's looking good. There's notes you can. It's like a it's like a it's like a real devotional. You could take notes and shit. So I'm looking forward to that. And I think I think you you lovely listeners out there are gonna want to pick your hand, uh, get your hands on this one. So, uh, but I'm biased. So whatever. Uh, yeah, excited to be here again for another episode. That that means you, Jamal. You're next, oh, buddy. Oh, my next. Okay. Don't, okay. Did you have another stroke? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no, I actually. I was just looking at the notes here, and I see that we're in a new series. Is that right? Culture Wars. Oh, you know what? He's he's right. Sorry, guys. It's my fault. Um, <laughs> Old man Giles. <laughs> I was. I'm sorry. I was about to give give Jamal a hard time here. Like, oh no, it's me. Yeah. So, hey, everybody. Uh, we are in uh, a brand new, we're kicking off a brand new series with this podcast. We're going to be doing a series of podcasts on the culture wars. So that'll be topics that are related to uh, pop culture, modern culture, just things that are people are talking about. And um, so, yeah, that, that's what we're going to be kicking off here. Coming up, we have a lot of great episodes coming up in this series. Very, very cool. And um, I've mentioned this a few times before, but I'll do it again just for consistency. We do have a hotline. And uh, the number to the hotline, and this is for, by the way, if the hotline is only for listeners. So if you're listening to this, you are, you are invited to participate in the hotline. And the number is 
343-7379. Again, 240-343-7379. You can call any time of the day. You can leave a voicemail. You can leave a text message and we will get those. And we, um, our last episode, we kind of cleared the pipelines of the, of the hotline and we, uh, damn it. What's wrong? What's wrong? Okay. So we, 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 we cleared that and we, uh, we, uh, had a great conversation with some folks, uh, with some of the listeners uh, leaving their, their voicemails and text messages. And so, but we actually have a brand new voicemail that came in to the hotline. So can we cue that up? Hey guys, did you all know that you had a heretic hotline? Anyways, I've only listened to the first 10 episodes. I'm actually on hell no or hell yes right now. Um, I just had to call to say first, thank you because this podcast has really helped me process all the stuff in my head. Second, now more than ever, I'm convinced that it's not what you believe that counts, but just that your beliefs lead you to love, love being understood as freely giving of self. And third, perhaps you all have already covered it, but what does church look like for each of you now? Do you go to some building and worship, or do you all uh, do some form of house church, I look forward to hearing your answer. I've only got 47 more episodes to listen to before I catch up, so you can probably take your time in answering this one. Keep up the good work. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming you have some uh, some answers, Keith. <laughs> well, you know, I've never really thought about that before. Um, no, actually, yeah. So it's funny. But, of course, the three of us are all going to give you very different answers right now. So I think that's great. That's kind of the great thing about this podcast. So, yeah, um, Wendy and I, my wife Wendy and I, we – for uh, the last 12 years now have been uh, involved with house church, do, doing house church, but <clears throat> very different than I think what even most house churches that I've even visited um, are like. So it's extremely uh, like there's like, you know, I'm not the pastor. We don't have a human being who runs everything and, and tells us what to do. We literally just come together with other believers, sit in silence, uh, recognize the presence of Jesus with us and um, speak to him, pray to him, sing to him. Uh, relate to Jesus as he's with us and um, just kind of uh, share what we know of Christ with one another and bless one another and help one another uh, in our own personal discipleship to him. We might sing and we certainly eat a lot and um, eat very well, lots of good food. And we kind of do that as often as we can. So that's kind of what church looks like for for Wendy and I uh, now. Yeah, I don't have a church. I don't care. I don't know. Um, I hang out with my wife and my daughter and my friends, and that's about whoa, whoa, whoa. it. <laughs> what about? Don't you think the bonfire sessions? I'm gonna give you a chance to plug something here. Yeah. Don't you think that? Yeah. No. I mean, well, thanks for bringing that up because, yeah, I mean, wherever two or more are gathered, and I know maybe I'm taking that out of context, but yeah, I I hang out with my best friend Mike Machuga, and we do a podcast now, and we sit around the bonfire and and chat, and now we record drink. it and then uh, drink. Well, sometimes we drink, maybe. And partake in other, um, you know, <laughs> things. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, if that's church, then fine. I, 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 I don't need the label of church. I think there's so much baggage with that, and I think it's uh, so. I, I, as far as officially, what I mean, I, I don't know. I'm really just kind of agnostic. And I don't really care if what you call it. I'm just hanging out with my mm. friends. So that's uh, that's just where I'm at. Yeah. If you want to call that church, that's cool. Yep. Yeah, it's a good question uh, the, from the listener asking about our experience with church. You know, <clears throat> just to, I, I, I was obviously years ago, I was a pastor. So I was a, very much a part of the evangelical, you know, the traditional evangelical church uh, construct. 
So I was a pastor. I was also a part of churches before I was a pastor. And even after I stepped down as a pastor, I was a part of, you know, uh, traditional churches where there was clergy and lady and that whole, you know, get involved in ministry and all that kind of thing. And then I uh, kind of deconstructed from that and uh, got, got, was influenced, you know, from folks who were heavily, heavily into the house church, organic church world. So I, I really dove into that head first and got very involved in that and bought, drank the Kool-Aid there. And um, I'll be completely honest. Like I just finished, my wife and I just finished watching a series on net. I think it's a Netflix series uh, called the family. <laughs> mm, and I know that's a, yeah. about how the involvement of religious right and politics. I know that's kind of the theme there, but I'll tell you what it triggered me. That whole thing triggered me. Now I had nothing to do with politics. That thing triggered me because it was my, my experience verbatim. I mean, even down mm. to the language. Were you, were you in the family? Well, the family? I was quote, quote unquote in the fam- the house church, organic church family. And that I'm telling you, even the things that guy taught, was I heard that the same language, Jesus plus nothing. Um, this is all about, this is about a family. We don't want to have a label. We don't have a name, all this stuff. But the abuses, I experienced, the, I, I witnessed it in other people. I personally experienced it. Um, it, it. I mean, cult 101. And it's like, dude, that was mm. my experience. Uh, that's all I, I mean, I, I was, there was some good in it. There were some beautiful things in it. But again, it was still that us and them, believers, non-believers, dichotomy and we, it was a select, select club and tribe. It was not a healthy experience for me. So I uh, deconstructed out of that. And um, now I, I, the way I approach the world is that I think that my understanding of the New Testament church is that it was a prototype of the new humanity, kind of how we relate. And so I kind of, the way I view it is I don't really look at people as being believers or non-believers. I just see people. And so I think it's healthy to have relationships and healthy to gather with people and that will happen, but I don't have a prescribed way that that goes on, just kind of flow in that. So uh, relationships, I value that. I don't really, so people, you know, in the Christian world would say, oh, you don't, you don't belong. I was talking to my dad not too long ago. He's like, you don't, you don't really belong to any church. You're just kind of out there floating, but that's not how I would perceive my life. I feel like I belong to everything that is because I'm connected to all that mm. is. That's kind of my perception. I don't really feel like I'm missing anything because I feel like the whole world is the church and we're a part of it. Mm. Yeah. So just the takeaway from that, those answers is that we're all in a different place and it all means something a little bit different to all of us. And that's, uh, maybe that's the point, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think in general, I mean, here, this is sort of typical. I think anybody who's deconstructed their faith is probably not going to continue to go to the first Baptist church on the corner. You know, I mean, I mean, some of them might, and I, I'm sure some people do, but if they do, the reasons for doing so are probably because they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to piss off you know, or, or her uh, insult a family member uh, or something like that. Like they're only going sort of for appearances, but not because they really enjoy it or they're comfortable there. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, this is just based on the people I've talked to over the years. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think definitely your idea of church is going to change as you go through this deconstruction process. So, and whatever you come yeah. up with, um, for a solution, I think is probably better than what you are currently in, uh, unless it's something abusive, kind of like what Jamal is talking about. Like I would, I would run, run, run as fast as you can from anything that's trying to control you or manipulate you or get you to do stuff based on fear and control and all that garbage. Um, but yeah, anything other than that <clears throat> is, uh, is an improvement, even if it's just taking a walk in the, in the woods or hanging out with your friend and having a beer or, you know, uh, so much better 
Yeah. So many better options. Yeah. So I guess uh, that means it's time for uh, for us to get to our heretic of the week, eh? It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Klein, and I am a heretic. Hi, Hi Dr. Klein. Yes, Klein. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't sure. Do I say Sam? Wait, Dr. Klein? Yeah. Anyway, hey, uh, Samantha, so so excited to have you with us um, on the podcast. I've known you for a while, although I, I know your husband really well, and I've gotten to know you a little bit recently and been reading your blog, um, Pathios, and I am always blown away anytime I've engaged you, either that's directly or just online. I'm really impressed with just a lot of the things that you have to say. And it's awesome to have you as a guest on uh, the Heretic Happier. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You can call me Sam from this point on, um, but thank you so much. I think there's uh, mutual respect in terms of the work that we do. So I'm glad to be here under the yeah. her- under heretical conditions. yeah and so you know normally when we kick these things off what we the the, the main the first thing we want to know is you know why is it that people some people consider you to be a heretic sam what is it what is it about you what you you say what do you do what is it that makes people call you a heretic yes i think it began a long time ago i think first and foremost questioning and not just typical questioning about the scripture about, you know, trying to find out the Greek meaning of a particular word in the Bible. But I think it's questioning um, some of the ways in which we engage and live out Christianity that do not necessarily um, fit sometimes the norms in a particular church culture. I think that's number one. And I question, not for the sake of doing so, not for the sake of being disruptive or just, you know, you have people sometimes they ask questions because they just want to be a contrarian or mm-hmm. to instigate. But for me, just simple, simply just wondering, desiring, wanting to know more of God, that can be uh, a bit disruptive because people may not have the answers. And sometimes people struggle with the ambiguity and that can be seen as threatening, dangerous, heretical. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think because of that sense of questioning, that sense of seeking, um, like for one, like I just I finished, I think, weeks ago, um, a year-long series where I quit the Bible for a year. Oh. So doing things like that mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't, can be seen, something little like that, something big like that, can be seen as heretical. And because it's like, if you're a Christian, that's one of the things that a lot of times in our way in which we live it out, that you're supposed to read the Bible. You're supposed to read it every day. So the idea of quitting the Bible to follow Jesus can be seen heretical. And then on top of that, I mean, there's I I talk about this notion of letting go of hell in Christianity, where some people see that as the cornerstone of their faith in some way. Um, letting go of that need to send people to hell and that part of my faith journey, that's seen as heretical. Um, I've written about also like just exploring, you know, beyond some of the things that just narrowly fit a lot of the ways in which we've constructed church and Christian living, whether it's crystals, whether it's a lot more that may be considered mysticism. I'm much more comfortable with exploring that. And that um, really may rub up against certain um, traditions in the church. 
on top of that, um, I've, I've recently like really made this very, made it known publicly that, you know, I'm no longer consider myself a Christian. Although I believe in God, I believe in the power of Jesus. Jesus has been central to so much of my faith. It's definitely seen heretical to believe in God, to still have Jesus part of my faith, but not necessarily think that Jesus is the only way, or to still keep Jesus in my life and understand that Jesus is very much a part of my life and still not consider myself a Christian. Mm -hmm. The last thing um, is I, I write, speak, teach much about race, issues of race, issues of uh, race, gender, class, sexual orientation, a range of constructs and how that is a part of our spiritual um, our spiritual life. There are some people who believe that is something that's political, it's not something that's a part of faith. So that in and of itself can be seen heretical and extremely disruptive. But I'm okay with embracing ambiguity, confronting things that aren't necessarily comfortable and that don't necessarily fit the way we've always done things just for the sake of doing them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so... Yeah, all that sounds like totally what we do here on the show. Um, yes. But go back if you could about this about this business of quitting the Bible. Um, okay. Maybe maybe like maybe like a two part question. What's um, what kind of spurred on the desire to do that? And then how did that go? Could you kind of tell us about that process? What was what was some of the feedback you got on your blog? And um, yeah, what kind of stuff were you talking about there? Oh, that's a good question, Matt. So. It was it was a long time coming. Like sometimes what I found, Matt, is that sometimes by the time I write about things publicly, there's been months or years of a lot that's happening that people may not know about. Um, mm-hmm. And so it has been on my my heart for months about about really taking stepping away from the Bible because I noticed how there was so much arguing, contention about, and, and I would say judgment and policing people about their faith and using the Bible as a weapon to do that. And I, I began to, I would have moments where I felt like people really need to put the Bible down for a moment so they can really yeah. follow Jesus. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I got to a point where, I mean, there's so much that's that I've had that's happened in my life where I, I, I know I mean I, I know that God that Jesus was very was close to me and with me and it was just beyond the pages of the Bible. And I got to a point where and I was scared to do that, to step away for a moment to do that because of fear of what other Christian people who are close to me, the very close people to me, what they would think. But I realized if I'm going to, before I can tell someone else, like, hey, you need to put your Bible down, like, I, I need to do that myself first. So mm. that's what that came, <laughs> you know, it's easy to, 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 to stand in a pulpit and, and wag my finger and tell people what they need to do. But am I willing to mm. do it myself? And so mm. it was, so that's what happened. I'm like, you know what? I can't tell someone else. <laughs> I can but it's not an integrity. You know, we can tell people that. I'm like, you know what? What if, what if I just do that? What if I just walk that myself? You know, let me walk that out. Um, and so that's what that came about. 
And I mean, I knew before I even did that, Matt, like I had to, I sat with like a lot of the judgment that I knew that I would experience and a lot of the emotion with that. Like I had to, before I could actually do that and write about that publicly, like I gave myself time to really process that myself because I knew it was going to be very hard. I knew that there was going to be, I knew, you know, when you're in church for a long time, you know some of the things to expect and what people will say. And being a person that used to be extremely, like, I know some of the things I would have said to my, you know, in the past what I would have said to somebody who was doing that. So I I sat with facing my own judgment, the way I would have judged people in the past. And I really sat with that for some time and really wrestled with that and felt that, felt all the weight of that. So that when I did that and when I did receive the comments about people concerned about my soul, that I'm going to hell, that the devil's going to get me, though, the reason why is because I'm, you know, the devil, you know, all those things, I was in a place to be able to handle that. It was still saddening. But at the same time, I saw a reflection. I wrote about that. And this goes to your question about some of the things I touched upon. It's like I really couldn't even... I mean, I could, but because I sat with some of that stuff and I and saw how so much of that was me, I was able to handle and hold that and 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 experience all of that shame and judgment and all this stuff that people would you know maybe try to engage in um, in the response. Um, I was able to in- handle that and continue on and not take that personal because I already have, you know, set with all that stuff myself. I'm like, you can't send me to hell because I spent so many years sending myself to hell. (laughs) I spent so much time judging Mm. other people. I've done the same thing. So people were sharing things with me and they thought it was new. And I'm like, honey, I'm thinking in my head, like, honey, I would have said this 10 years ago to somebody. You're not telling me stuff that I haven't already said with people. So it was very helpful for me to see like, wow, Sam, this is how you are. This is what you would do to people. And so actually walk that out. Um, it helped to not be so be upset at people like, how dare you? It's like, how can I say how dare you? And it's like, um, honey, that would have been you five years right. ago. So, <laughs> And so mm. I did um, express some of the things. Some of the things I talked about was just, Experiences that I would just glean spiritually just from my daily experiences. So there was so much that happened, Keith, Matt, that did not make that year long blog. There were sometimes there were things I would just pick out one thing in a week, but it was just, there were so much rich lessons and experiences in Christ and seeing Christ and experiencing Christ and the ups and downs throughout that year. There was just so much that didn't even make the blog I didn't talk about. There were some things that were just sacred um, that I did not even, you know, I didn't write about. Um, I, two things. I, we like to ask people how they got to where they, to where they are now and what was that journey sort of like. I would like maybe to hear about how did, how did you get from, from the place maybe you grew up in, in, in going through, I'm sure, some change to where you're at now and how did race come into that and, and, and become something that you want to speak? I mean, 
you know, you're, you are a person of color, you're a black woman. So it's, it's going to, you're, you're probably going to have that propensity, but how specifically did you come to a place where you wanted to speak out on these things? Yes. So I grew up in a small town in Mississippi and, and I, I, and I say that the legacy of Jim Crow was very, was very present um, because uh-huh. I mean, just growing up, we had like black homecoming, kings and queens, white homecoming, kings and queens. We had a black prom, white prom. Wow. And I mean, I remember we were, you know, some years ago planning like our uh, class reunion. There was this conversation about, is it going to be segregated or not? I'm like, okay, wow. we're grown people. We're adults. Wow. Why, is this, why is this even, a, why is this coming to my attention? Why are we talking about that? So, wow. um, so it, there was, it was very pronounced with race and the, along the division in high school. And I, and I think if you go to my website, you'll hear a little more, read more about that. But I had an experience where I was falsely accused of a crime because of my race. And it was a year long ordeal. And after that was, you know, was wrapped up, I was extremely angry, bitter, rightfully so. I mean, there was just, I was, it, I was extremely upset <laughs> about the whole thing. And, and so even though it was some things that I thought about as a child and watched and reconciled and negotiated throughout my childhood, um, moving on into adulthood, I, it was, there were some different experiences I had where I, I think I got to a point where I realized either I, either I'm going to stay bitter and continue that path. Or I'm going to figure out a different way to be, knowing that racism is not going to magically disappear. But how I'm going right. to live right. in this world, knowing that these things still exist, how am I going to choose? So that moved into that path um, a lot more. Um, spiritually, I, I wasn't raised in a church. And I mean, I, mm. at some point, like for the most part, like we were banned from going to church. Uh, I remember one point we went for a little bit, but uh, my father, he became very, he just became really upset about that. So that stopped. So I didn't go back until sometime in high school. There was a lot more wiggle room and freedom. Um, I really, so I got saved like in high school and because I realized there was this void that I had. And, and I, I remember just getting tired of like the parties and all this other stuff. I was a nerd, but I also would go to these, go to parties and all that. And it just got old very quickly by like the end of my freshman, sophomore year. And that was very helpful. Once I, you know, start having to deal with that whole false accusation, my faith was extremely <laughs> tested and helpful for that. And so, yeah. so there was this, there, it was intertwined with healing and moving through a lot of the things, making sense of what does it mean to embody, you know, these these identities, these social constructs that I navigate in this world, and also growing my in in my faith. And so, yeah, that took me on a journey. I went from Baptist and then Pentecostal, Apostolic, <laughs> non-denominational, you know, servative ministry. I mean, I went through this whole, um, uh, you know, this. There's a lot that I haven't written and talked about, but there was this 
there was much where I was exploring with my faith. And there's some things that I, I wanted to know God. And I think that's the main thing that was just first and foremost, like for me, I just remember one, like early, like one point in high school. And I remember asking God, like, I just want you. And I asked God, like, I just want to know you and just, just know you. And if there's anything that, (laughs) anything that's going to take me off that, like, like reveal it to me, but I just want to know you. I'm not trying to be committed to anything, but just knowing all of you. And I think that can be a dangerous question, dangerous kind of openness. I always say it was a question, but openness, because Mm -hmm. what I found throughout these different experiences that I've had in religion from being super, I mean, very dogmatic (laughs) to Mm -hmm. um, being much more open. um, Well, I think the whole heart of it was going through those different phases was all of those were necessary because, um, because, they were, it was all shaping me and useful for a season. So some of the things were very useful. It was very useful when I was like in my, you know, going through my Baptist season. It was very useful when I was like really hardcore in, you know, ministry and serving. That was very useful. There was some knowledge and wisdom and teachings that were useful. And what I found is when you're walking with God and you're really thinking, God, you're just not going to stay stagnant because my journey has been like, sometimes I want to be comfortable. I'm like, okay, I'm in a good place. I've made sense of things, but then I spirit of God will just challenge that. There will be experiences and things that will just call for more. So I would say part of my experience has been, you know, there were, I will come to the end of what was useful for that season. And a lot of times people see that as I got it wrong. And, and for me, I don't see it that way. Yeah. Um, but some things, it was like, yeah. this was useful for me for this time. Now I'm being invited to explore something else because, again, it goes to, I just want God. And so that's how I think things became from where it is because let me tell you, Matt, <laughs> Matt Keith, that yeah. years ago, like if there's just no way you could tell me that I would say, oh, I'm not like some of the things that I'm saying now. Like, there's no way. Like, there's just no way. Right. So there's just but when we're really seeking and we just want to know God, then that that opens things up. But when you say, well, God, this is it. It stops at this religion. And you say this is the answer. Well, we close ourselves up. He's like, well, this is what you want. This is as far as you're going to go because that's what you only want to go. Right. And it's a, it can be very scary because sometimes we don't have the model. Yeah. We don't have like sometimes a framework for that. Yet at the same time, either we can just, for yeah. me, it's like either I, I you stay in a place and let it crush your soul and be miserable. <laughs> so please people. Or we can continue, even though it can be very uncomfortable and suddenly continue to just follow, follow God and how God is leading. So for me, it's, it's shown me that, you know, religion is a means and an end. That's the way I feel. Like for some people, and it's helped me, I think this whole experience has helped me to have grace mm. for like a lot of us in our walk. 
because some people, they leave the church and they just go full on like anti people in church. And I don't, I don't have that because for some people, part of their journey on this earth will be with what they're doing in the realm of a religion or a church. Right. And that's part of their work and it's part of their experience. And that's part of what they're here to do to guide other people in their spiritual evolution while they're here. And for some other people, it may not ever yeah. set foot in any religion in any church and have a wonderful divine experience in what they're here to learn while they're here during this time in their life. And then for others, religion may be part of an overall experience and lessons that they have. It only serves a purpose for only so much time, but it's not for them to stay there. And, I, and so the more that, and again, like it goes back to the story of the gentleman that I, mm. that I engaged with and so many other right. people that I've engaged with over the years is it, it, it open, it opens up such a greater um, capacity and understanding for there's, there's so much room for every, for people in their walk and their journey. And to, and to respect that and love that. So for me, some of the things I realized, my husband observed, made this observation one day. He said, you know, some of the stuff that you were like thinking way back in high school is like kind of going back to some of that. I'm like, it's so funny. Some things is yeah. like, I, it's, the growth is, is sometimes a cyclical and this, it goes back and forth. It's like sometimes mm-hmm. We need to have these experiences to realize, like, okay, there w- I was on to something way back then. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But sometimes I think we can judge ourselves. And I, and I say that because I used to be in that place where I was just judging myself. And I was trying so hard in my own strength to live this Christian life. And I realized, and that's why I realized, like, it's not about, you know, like, oh, I- I can't believe I spent five years in this ministry in this church and it was all wrong. Like there were things that were very useful and helpful and it makes who we are. So that's how it's come about. That's been part of it. The cliff notes, very long cliff notes version of that experience. (laughs) Yeah. So what I love what you, what you're saying as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, it's one of these things where um, you either have religion or religion has you. And if you, so if, if you are in a position where I think well, I love what you're saying about how if religion is something that's part of your process, part of your journey, part of the way you're trying to understand your spirituality or understand some idea of who God is, what he's like. And this is part of part of what helps you in that growing, maturing process. Then that and religion can be good. The problem is when when religion becomes that like you serve religion, religion doesn't serve you. Yes. And, and you're now, that's when you start getting dogmatic and you're like, I'm right and you're wrong and you're stuck and you're not growing and you're not processing. You're right. And, and you know it. And then that religion just kind of like hardens around you and becomes this kind of thick wall of armor or something that kind of keeps you from really connecting with with God or others and sometimes even with yourself. So it, it can be a bad, bad thing. Yes. And so, and um, so much in terms of with, um, with all with these identities we have, because one, one thing I find not even just in the church and different people's spiritual expressions on this earth is that sometimes we get super so spiritual that we can use that as an excuse to not deal with what does it mean to walk out that spirituality on, you know, just on our daily lives. And that's where I find when I look at the things I talk about when it comes to race is that 
you know, it's not enough to just throw out a scripture and say there's no Jew, no Greek, but yet, okay, but our churches are so segregated. What the heck is that about? Like, it's not enough to just say these things. I'm like, oh, it's just all about love and just forgive. But it's like, (laughs) but how are you walking this out? But what about all these other things that's being ignored? It sounds good, but the spirituality is not doing well when my feet hit this ground and I walk it out. We're not walking that out too well. So for me, it's like yep. I'm, you hear, I hear these things and, I, and, and, and read these things. That's like, but I'm still having this experience here as a spiritual being that I have, that I deal with the, some of the stuff that comes with being a human being. And that is the labels and the ways we construct identities that I still live out, although I am a spiritual being. So my spirituality then, it must be, for me anyway, it must be useful it must help and guide how I live out all of these intersectional identities with other people. And that's a challenge. And so that's been part of, yep. of this whole growing and continuing to, <laughs> I would say growing. Sometimes it may not seem like growing, but part of yeah. this journey, because one of the things that was useful for me, like just, and some of the things that I think came from my walk is like, it's just, didn't just come from a Bible or church. It came from just living this thing out and, and, and really seeking God. And sometimes just having God, when there's no scripture that's there, when you're crying in the middle of the night and just trying to get your Mm -hmm. life. And it's like, there's no freaking scripture that can help, but just having that experience and knowing that God's there and just getting those answers, maybe from a person that you meet or something that happens and knowing that it's very spiritual and just as real as the Bible that I had one of the questions like what is worth keeping and what is worth letting go and that was for me Mm -hmm. when I think about my identity even let's just look at race and I began to find like there's some things like everybody in all of our our just racial identities and the culture that we've created around that like we all got some things that's useful but there's some things we may want to let go of and so yep. that for me has been, for me, what I find has been useful is getting to a bigger vision and having a vision-driven life. And I think sometimes when we are stuck in our pain or we're in denial about dealing with things and we haven't really dealt with what does it mean to have all these identities and grow through them, we can just get stuck in really having conversations that's locked in our pain, but there's not a vision. No one's thought like, well, what do you want? What's the end goal of all that? And for me, I found that that's been very useful as a spiritual practice to keep me in integrity as to whatever I'm doing, what are my principles and what is the vision? Because we can get really, I can get caught up in like the emotions and all these things that can, that happen that's really part of being a human that we can, that I can get off track, you know, because of that. But I'm like, but when I get to the core, my principles, my deep principles and the bigger vision, then that what guides me. And that's, to me, it challenged me because, again, it starts with me before I can ask anyone else, well, Sam, what are the things, I'm speaking to third person, Sam, what are the things that you may need to let go of that's not really serving a bigger vision? And I think part of our spirituality is like, how do you begin to heal, heal through some of these things? Healing doesn't mean that suddenly we just ignore wrongs and injustices. But it helps 
us to be able to have a vision and be able to walk in integrity and be able to co-create with other people more effectively to move toward that vision and have much more compelling conversations for that. So my spirituality, it challenges me. I just recently shared like an article. I wrote a post and it, it was challenging for me. It was like a study um, and it was about how it was about, you know, fatal officer involved shootings. And the researchers were sharing that, you know, white police officers aren't as, you know, they are not more likely to kill black people. That when I first came across a study, I'm like, oh, gosh, that was very hard for me to even read that or see that. But I'm like, I'm going to read. I don't want to read other people's perspectives about it. I'm going to go through this myself. So part of my practice is to not just hear the things that I want to hear. To not read the things that I want to read, not right. to just have a yes woman <laughs> echo chamber, yeah, the knowledge that I consume. So part of my practice is not enough for me to expect other people to hear another perspective if I don't do it myself. And so I shared it because I'm like, it, part of my practice in my spirituality, and we connect this with race and all these other ish, social issues that are very moral issues too, yeah, is that... Yeah. I must challenge myself to be that. What is it that I want from other people? How dare I expect someone to say, why don't you listen to another news source or read something else when I don't live it myself? So that means I'm committed to hearing, reading things, consuming things, weighing some things, hearing perspectives, and really putting that in conversation with other perspectives and making sense of that for myself. And I think if we have more people, if we take that on, but I think we have to kind of move through some of our pain and some of our other stuff that sometimes we don't necessarily deal with to be able to move through that practice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is so good, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much for, I mean, golly, I wish, I wish we could just talk and talk because I have so many, so many things I'd love to ask you about if we had another hour to go here, but well, I'll tell you what, if people want to continue to connect with you, to hear the amazing things you have to say, and engage with you uh, on these issues. How can they do that? Where can they find you and and uh, you know let let people know where? What, what are you working on right now? You're excited about and then what you know where can people yes, connect with you? Yes, uh, you can find me at raceandgrace.com. So you sign up there so you can stay in the know about different things that's coming down the road. I'm working on a book. I don't have a title yet, but it's based on the experiences of black girls in predominantly white school contexts. So that's coming. Mm. Like I haven't shared that. So I think this is the first this is being put out there, like, like right. socially. Yeah, that's So you know, like, they don't know about <laughs> that. Um, I don't have a title yet. But I mean, I have a title, but I'm not sure on it. So just so you'll know. So go to raceandrace.com. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can find the links for social media there on Facebook. Is race and the grace world Instagram and the Twitter is at race and the grace. So yeah, just stay in and know about you know, that and some other yummy things that's happening and coming out and yeah, to be in a conversation. I really enjoy hearing from different people, you know, when they agree or disagree, but drop their thoughts and <laughs> share their thoughts with me. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for having yeah. me. Thank you. Thank you, Jamal. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. It's been mm-hmm. great. Thank you. Yeah, this has been amazing. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been awesome. Mm, wow. 
I got to say, guys, I really love Samantha Klein. She is amazing. I, th- I think um, if she doesn't already, she needs to have a podcast of her own or something because she's she's pretty incredible. Mm. Well, I feel like I feel like that conversation could have gone on for hours and hours. <laughs> yeah. Not not in a bad not in a bad way. Like she just like she had so much great oh, shit yeah. to say, and it, it was so beautiful. Yeah. And guys, I'd like to. I just want to apologize uh, for just kind of talking like monopolizing the time on that interview, you know? Yeah, I know. I apologize. Yeah, I know. It was pretty much the Jamal Givenchy show, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> so, so sorry, guys. But it was great. It was a great interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, anyway, what, that... Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, that kind of brings us, I think, to our topic uh, for this podcast, kicking off the Culture War series. We want to start off with something light, you know, something not too controversial. Um, just kind of ease our way into this whole culture wars thing. And maybe we thought we'd talk about something, you know, that doesn't really cause a whole lot of division. It's something like racism. So yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I feel like, I mean, maybe we should do a disclaimer slash reminder um, that <sighs> nothing we say on the show is like doctrine or dogma. And, and I think the beauty of the show is that we all come at it from different angles. And so just a reminder that when we get into the culture war series, because I mean, uh, you know, things are going to be divisive and things that we say are going to um, probably cause a stir in people. And, and there's so many people on different sides of the aisle and have different opinions and views. And, and for some reason, like politics, um, social justice issues, that really seems even more than theology, I, I feel like. I mean, theology mm-hmm. can really be uh, a hot button thing, but I feel like even more so. Um, culture and politics really becomes a wedge that um, yeah that 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 we experience. And just a reminder that like the spirit of this show is to have healthy dialogue and healthy engagement, and we're all learning and we're all growing. And so I just I don't know I just feel like I wanted to put that out there before we even get rolling on this series because, like I said, theology seems to divide, but politics even I mean it can even get nastier. Yeah. Now, what makes me nervous. Is when you you say all of that right before we get into this topic. It's like right now you're getting ready to say something really racist. All right, do, you, do you feel like you need to? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, no, because I mean, I, I I hope I would hope that of all the culture war topics, this topic is one that the three of us would hopefully agree on. Mostly, anyway. Um, like it really. Uh, I, this is for me though. This tip, this topic is a trigger topic. Um, I was born in Tennessee. And, um, my, my, we moved away from Tennessee, my mom and dad and I, when I was like in second grade and we moved to Texas and we lived on the, on the border, um, like border towns in Texas. Uh, that's mostly where I grew up, spent most of my life growing up. Uh, so all of my friends were Hispanic. Uh, I was in the minority most of the time, you know, there weren't that many white guys, uh, going to these schools, uh, where I, where I grew up. And so I experienced, my experience was basically, uh, I grew up as a minority, not as a majority. I did grow up in a white school with like only a couple of black kids or, or Asian or Hispanic kids. I mean, it was the opposite for me. And so um, well, what I noticed was whenever we would go back in the summers and I'd go visit my family in Tennessee and my, you know, my cousins and everything. Oh my gosh. It was like, it was, it was like walking into another world because every single thing my uncles and aunts and cousins were saying was about they were dropping the N word. They were, t- you know, talking about black people and how you can't trust them, and they all carry a razor blade, and they'll all lie to you and steal from you and rob you, and 
don't turn your back on them and don't trust them. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? You know, it was like the racism was so stark and obvious to me. Um, and again, it, it's, it, I didn't grow up in it. So I, I think I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful that we did move away from that, that, uh, environment when I was very young, because that way I didn't, I didn't grow up in, in that environment where that's the language people use. And those weren't, those were not the assumptions that I grew up with. Uh, and my parents weren't this way, so they didn't teach me any of this garbage. But, um, but anytime I go back to visit family in Tennessee or any, anytime I'm just around someone who's racist, it, it really makes me angry. It really, really bothers me. And when I hear lately, you hear, I don't know if you guys have probably noticed, like there's been all kinds of um, things coming up about how it seems like it's mostly in the Bible Belt, mostly in the South, uh, but I wouldn't say exclusively. But, you know, they, these kind of things where people will say Christians, and this is what really bothers me. <clears throat> most of it is Christians. I got to say, I think most racist people I've met, unfortunately, have been Christians. And then and then the the scary thing is that they're basing their racism on the brand and the version of Christianity they've been handed by their pastor or by their church that, for example, you know, um, there was just a video the other day on Facebook where there was a lady saying uh, her chapel wouldn't perform uh, mixed race weddings. Mm, yeah, I saw that. And like, what are you talking about? And, and that kind of thing happens a lot, right? There's other, there's other quotes of people saying that they don't believe in mixed race uh, marriages, again, because, quote unquote, it's, uh, you know, I'm a Christian or I believe the Bible. Like, do you guys understand? There really aren't any white people in the Bible, or if there are, they're not the heroes. None of the prophets, Jesus, the disciples, the apostles—they are not white people. They—they're they're, the Bible isn't about white people. So you understand this, like, but we don't. It's like we've got this really twisted idea. Um. Anyway, sorry it's my rant, but it, it really bothers me, and uh, I think it gives us a really twisted idea of who God is and what the gospel's about. And yeah, it just this topic kind of bugs me. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's unfortunate that that uh, I saw this um, great uh, this great cartoon by David Hayward, the Naked Pastor, and he had this. Uh, when you were talking, Keith, it, it reminded me of that. It's got a big Bible, and then it's got like two arrows and two people, and one's got a gun, yep, and the other's got a heart, and 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 it's just like, yeah, we're. It's amazing how we're reading the same book, and we're coming up with mutually exclusive conclusions like 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 we're justifying yeah. not having a mixed race wedding because of the buy like are you serious right now like and then on the other hand you have you have people who are concluding that you know there are no dividing lines like paul concluded there are to be right. no dividing lines and it doesn't mean and and, and I mean, what i'm not saying is that it's uh, it's not okay to say yeah i'm a proud black person or i'm a proud gay person or I'm a proud uh, Mexican person. It's not saying that we don't have those things or that we shouldn't. It's just saying that those are not to be lines with which we divide. Right. And, and, and to use the Bible and the gospel to divide along racial or sexual or gender um, uh, differences is, well, it's antichrist. Right. Well, and again, this is the problem. This, unfortunately, even the topic is racism. But as you just said, it, it honestly kind of goes back to the Bible, unfortunately, for Christians. And uh, here's the problem with the Bible. I can use the Bible to prove anything I want. Just pick something. And OK, I can use the Bible to build a case to say, for example, something ridiculous as 
there shouldn't be mixed race marriages because I, I can find a handful of verses that support that that idea. But here's the other thing: I can find verses in the Bible to support the opposite idea, right? Like, like there's this um, there's a really specific verse where Moses takes a wife and it says she had dark skin, and his brother and sister, right, Aaron and Miriam, uh, didn't like her because she was dark skin, and God curses them with leprosy because of that. Like. Okay, that seems like a pretty strong thing way at the beginning of the book that God is sort of against this idea of um, not of, of being against a mixed race marriage and, and coming against somebody because they have dark skin. And yet, yet people have built a case somehow using cherry picking verses in the Bible to say that um, mixed race marriages is something God is against. Like, it's so crazy. But again, it goes back to this idea is something, do we want something that's quote unquote biblical? Because I think that's where we get into trouble. Or do we want something Christ-like? Like personally, I would rather have a more Christ-like world because if we start with Christ, we can't end up in these places where we say one race is better than another or we say that we shouldn't love certain people because of their skin color or their nationality or whatever. It's crazy. It's, it's, uh, but we have, to, we have to draw this distinction in our minds and we have to get this straight in our heads. Um, and I'm hoping that people who are listening to this podcast aren't struggling with this kind of a thing, that they're not going, yeah, you know, I love the heritage cap we are, but I, I just don't know about mixed race marriages and I just don't know about black people or Asians or whatever. Like, oh my gosh. But if you do, um, I really, really encourage you to, to prayerfully work through this issue. Um, and understand that any biases that we have against other races, against other ethnicities, or, or you know, it, this doesn't come from God. This doesn't come from Christ. This comes from our culture. It comes from uh, probably, most likely, probably our parents. This is something we have been trained to, to behave this way and think this way. Uh, and these are things we need to unlearn uh, pretty seriously. Yeah, you know, I think, I think uh, when I look at when I think about racism, I mean, I look at it as another form of judgment. You know, just people people who operate from a place of you know that that whole tree of knowledge of good and evil, where there's constant judgment. This is right and this is wrong. You know, it's another it's another way to judge people. You know, um, as being something there's something wrong with them. I, I think for me, and and again, it's natural in that sense in that in that world where, you know, if you're different then that different is automatically assumed to be like not good, you know? And I remember, you know, just, I, I can't actually remember ever. F I think I was aware it's hard because when you, it's like a fish growing up in water, you know, it's like you kind of assume it's normal. For me, it was always normal to be, f to, to feel different just because my dad, <clears throat> my mom is wh white, you know, uh, white American and, um, you know, has he European you know, mostly English heritage. And then my dad was born and raised in, in East Africa, but he's, his heritage is from India. So he's Indian, but was raised in an island called Zanzibar, which is a part of now part of Tanzania. Um, that's his home. That's where he's from. And uh, then he migrated his family. There was a revolution on the island. They migrated to, to Kenya and uh, lived in Mombasa. And so that, that I, and then of course he migrated to the United States. And so, I have this culture, you know, my mom comes from a Southern, I wouldn't say Southern, like South, deep South, but in Ohio, it's, you have a, you have a, I grew up in Ohio. So she's from the, her part of that city was like outside the main cities. It was part of those little towns in, in Southeastern Ohio. And that has a real 
kind of backwards kind of culture in the sense of that, you know, there's a lot of racism. There was a lot of just backwards kind of thinking, what I would call backwards thinking and small. My mom didn't embody though. She was, you know, she had really kind of rejected some of that thinking, but, but I, but her side of the family embodied that. So I didn't even feel when I would go around my cousins, aunts and uncles, I always felt like they would always say Jamal, you know, and, and like, of course my name isn't, a, a typical American name. It's Jamal. You know, um, in most white folks, you'll never meet white people named Jamal. Very. I don't, I don't know any white people named Jamal. Of course, I don't. A lot of people wouldn't even consider me white, but I am half white. My mom, you know, is white. So, um, but my name's Jamal. So immediately, I feel like I'm different. You know, I'm darker complected, darker, you know, dark hair and that kind of thing. So in my mom's side of the family, they're all light complected and that kind of thing. So I was always felt. And they would talk about my dad. My dad's name is. Uh, his first name is Abid, you know, A-B-I-D, it's a different name. His middle name is Hussein. So, you know, during the Gulf War, which when I was growing up, that was kind of the big thing. Saddam Hussein was the big call. call the, oh, it sounds like your dad's name, Hussein. I always get that, you know. We had, um, when I was a younger kid, we in our neighborhood that we grew up in, um, there was, uh, it was kind of what I would call, uh, I, would, I would call a redneck neighborhood. <laughs> and... Uh, we had our house spray painted the N word on the side of our house. Of course, we're not we're not black or African American, you know. But you know, to some folks that view anything different, that's kind of you're going to get you know that label put on you. So we had the N word spray painted on the side of our house. People threatened to burn our house down in this neighborhood. So we ended up moving. So that was reality for me. I mean, I that was very much I felt that, you know. And so I it was just a, and then you know even more recently. <laughs> Like I ended up moving to the South you know, a number of years ago from Ohio and I was getting pulled over every other week, um, you know, getting tickets. So in the North, I didn't get pulled over when I moved South to Tennessee, I was getting pulled over all the time. So I, I got it. I would hear comments, you know, um, you know, people, you know, police officers asking me, Hey, so where are you from? Where, where are you, where are you headed to? Where are you going? You know? And that was typical. And I was, so I just was like, yeah. And then even just, uh, more recently I moved to Southern California and when my wife and I, um, we were looking to move to the mountain area uh, and look for homes up here in the mountain to, to live in. And when we would inquire, anytime there was a listing, when I would, and this is just reality, I would actually call to inquire about a home and uh, I never got calls, but I almost never got calls back ever. And I'm like, wow, they, they, no one returns my call. Of course I put my name in Jamal, you know, I'd never get a call. But as soon as my, my wife would put her name and information in, she get a call back in five minutes. And so, you know, you don't have to be like, yeah. it's like, okay, you know, so even, and this is, this is 2019, you know, of course, when we were, it was like a little over a year ago when we were looking for a place here in the mountains, but, um, it's, that's a reality. It's just, if, if, you know, there's, it's the unknown. Somebody didn't, okay, who, somebody named Jamal applying, applying, you know, putting a name on an application. Uh, it just, or inquiring about a home or whatever. It's just, yeah, we don't have to call that person back. And I don't even think people are conscious of it, but it's a reality. It's just, yeah. Well, and I think a lot of um, a lot of the issues uh, surrounding race and racism is l- less than overtly conscious. And so I, I, I and what I mean is that it's on a systemic level and it could be um, unless you're a person of color, you're not going to see it as much. Right? right. We all we all view things through our lens and our grid and our filter. But unless you're really looking for, unless you're listening to people of color, and that's what I think is first and foremost on, on all these conversations, um, is that we, white people have been talking for too long. Like we, 
white people need to be second <laughs> or third or fourth. <laughs> we are not, not first in having the conversation because systemically, um, it does affect people of color. And, and unless we're really looking for it, we're not going to experience in, in, in any way, shape or form the same as people of color. And right. so let me give you one example and what I mean on a systemic level. White people and black people typically uh, use drugs around the same rate. Um, I forget the percentages. Um, and, and there's different drugs of choices between, between the two groups. However, for nonviolent drug offenses, black people are locked up way, 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 way more often than white people, yet they're doing drugs at the same rate. And so that, I think, shows that there is a, a systemic bias against black people, Yes, especially in that area. And, and this is what I think um, is going on when we talk about white privilege. It doesn't mean that every person who's white like, had some privileged life. It just means they weren't um, oppressed because of their whiteness, per se. Right. Right. I mean, maybe you grew up in a shitty home. Maybe you grew up in a broken home. Maybe you grew uh, up around violence and drugs and crime and you're white and you were poor. But it wasn't because of your whiteness. Right. When we talk about uh, systemic racism or white privilege, we're talking about like black people or, or other people of color who are oppressed simply because of their color. Right. Right. So I, I think it's always important to distinguish. Like I think I think some people get confused. Like, oh well, I was, I was, uh, I grew up in a broken home, I, and I was white, and I was poor. So there's obviously no white privilege. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. It's not to discredit yeah. your experience, but it's to say, well, you were probably not privileged because of other circumstances, not necessarily your skin color. Yeah, and then yeah, this is. I'm glad you brought this up because this is the thing too, and I and I think it's something where. So, yeah, there are certain kinds of racism. It's very obvious to notice when somebody calls someone the N-word or, you know, makes a joke, a, a, an off-color joke about somebody's race or something like that. So, or even what Jamal is talking about where um, people won't call him back for, to rent him a house because he leaves his name Jamal. And so, um, but there's also these situations of, like, America is a, is a nation that if we go back historically the the um, the economy of this nation was built upon in fact the wealth of this nation was built upon the success of this nation built upon slavery um and and slave labor this is how so many people in the south got rich and 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 industries flourished because of cheap slave labor um and so there is a it's kind of embedded into the psychosis of the of the nation that we have an entire nation with systems built to favor white people. Um, mm -hmm. And there are so many examples of this kind of a thing. Um, there's a documentary called 13, which is excellent to kind of expose some of this. And, and, and what I'm saying is it's the kind of a thing where as a white person, um, I'm, 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 uh, I can't see it. Like, because I'm experiencing it. I experience the world a certain way, in other words. And uh, I experience the world in a certain way that I must, I sometimes assume everyone must experience the world this way. But the reality is that the world that I experience tends to favor me because I am born to a certain family and live in a certain neighborhood. And I'm given certain, um, certain privileges that, that I assume everyone has, but they don't. And I, and I don't re realize it because um, I haven't grown up in this other home and this other 
and this other nationality, and I haven't experienced these things where, um, and sometimes it's systemic. Sometimes it is something where, you know, uh, I can't rent a house because of my my skin color, or I can't my kids can't go to a certain school because of their uh, ethnicity, or or I can't get a certain job because of um, my name or or my nationality or background. Um, those things are are, are also happening. Um, but there's also things that are going on that are even more subtle than that that we are oblivious to. And so anyway, it's helpful. It's really helpful to do some research. In fact, you know, it's even the most helpful thing, to be honest, is um, just sit down with your friends. Hopefully you have some <laughs> who are, uh, if you're white, sit down with people who are Hispanic or Asian or black and who have grown up uh, under this kind of thing and just get them to tell you what it's like. Get them to tell you what their experiences are and you'll pretty quickly notice Oh my gosh, I, I had no idea. I, I, I've never experienced that. I've never been treated that way. Um, you know, I've never, I've never had that kind of thing in my life. And so the more that we can have our eyes open to that kind of a thing, um, I think the more it helps us to recognize, uh, just how pervasive it is and how destructive it is. And then maybe find ways that we can help, uh, to change that, you know, to help people that are, who aren't white, who are privileged, um, to kind of get over that and get around that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I I think needs to be talked about, because I I hear this a lot and I get it. I totally get it. But there's, there's a conversation out there a lot about specifically from, so so nobody, because if you're born white, it's not your, um, it's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault that you're born white. It doesn't make you a racist or, you know, anything like that. And so a lot of times I've heard lots of, folks who've come, you know, from a white background that would say, you know, I'm tired of the racism conversation. I did not, I am not a racist. I don't do anything that's racist. I'm tired of white people being, you know, talk about white privilege and all this kind of thing. And, you know, it's, there's a sense of like, you know, like, gosh, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a part of that. So why do I get lumped into this or why do I have to? And I, I get that. I understand that, but here's what I would like to say. And I just, I'll put it back to like, so as a life coach, when I in my doing coaching work with people, there is there's a real reality. There's some, like if you're interested in healing, obviously, like people who call themselves followers of Jesus, I think are motivated by the healing of the world, or at least that's that's the idea of Jesus. The aim of Jesus is that people would be transformed and healed. Okay, so we care about healing. I know you do. I know people listening to this do. We care about healing. So if you in my work as a coach, I the whole point of this is healing so people can move forward. There's something really powerful about going back in time for that person. And okay, when there's a when there's an issue, when there's a a repetitive pattern and people are experiencing, I always like to pinpoint when is the first time you began to feel this thing in your own life. And when we can go back to a memory and begin to recall that memory um, on an individual basis, and even just examine that, kind of get present with that memory, and then maybe even put a new perspective around that memory. There's a release of toxin. There's a release of, of hurt and pain that was trapped inside that was keeping that person held back. And that is true on an individual basis, but I will also say it's true on a collective basis beyond just the individual life. So it didn't take me long in life. I was a corrections officer for four and a half, almost five years as a young adult. I worked in a prison and it was way lopsided racially. And, you know, people, and, 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 and so African American people are have a much higher rate of incarceration. Um, there, it doesn't. It does not take 
a rocket scientist to look and to say, economically, socially, there is some pain, really deep pain in minority communities and are in this country. And it's even though all over the world you can find that same thing, it's different. The black and white thing is very unique to the United States. Uh, I was in France not too long ago, and you know, uh, you know, I attended a, a wedding with a white family and a black family, and literally, it gets very common. No, people don't even blink. They have their own issues with racism in, in Europe as well. I'm not saying they don't, but in this issue with black and white, I talked to a black uh, French lady who had come to the United States to study, and she was like, "I didn't even realize I was black until I came to the United States." She's like, "I just, it was like." I'm, human first and yeah, maybe black, but it wasn't like such a big deal. And here it's like, wow, you know, you really feel it. And it's, it feels separate and ostracized and that kind of thing. There is a real issue in this country. And I think where white people can participate in the healing of our culture is by helping to get conscious. And again, we do this as an individual, we read history books. We know that the, that the Africans were, were kidnapped and taken from their continent and brought over here. We get that from history, but there's not really been an owning of it on a collective basis where we sit back and we say, Hey, this happened and it was really wrong. And the, it, and the suffering that it's it still, there's still, and we know this from even DNA in DNA. I don't know if you know this, there's this thing called telomeres, which Holocaust people who were affected by the Holocaust just 67 years ago, that, that telomeres were altered in their DNA and shows up in their grandchildren. Now, it's still there. So like there's, there's trauma, collective trauma in physical DNA. We've seen this in, in the work that's done in genetics, but it's also spiritual, emotional trauma that doesn't go away overnight. And just so, so when white people say, Hey, I, I didn't live back then. Right. I heard Mitch McConnell, the, the Republican uh, speaker or, or the majority leader in the, in the Senate say, Hey, I, I didn't, we weren't born back then. We don't, we don't really answer yeah. to that. That is a fundamental misunderstanding how life works. So it's really important to acknowledge that. And I think right. that's where in a political right. conversation, there's talk of saying, Hey, yeah. reparations or whatever, you know, uh, there's a candidate that I support, Marianne Williamson, who says right. she's actually, and this is not to me political over political, but it, it's, imp- there's a place for it to say, okay, guys, we have never as a collective society owned this and have even acknowledged from an apology standpoint, from a financial standpoint, yeah. whatever, like, Hey, there's a whole community of people that have been deeply affected and we are sorry for it. It's not, people say, I didn't have anything to do with it. You're speaking as an individual, but you can't neglect it collective. Yep. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned up the uh, intergenerational trauma because that's so, so true. And, I, and, it, and it does bug me that yep. people are like, oh, I didn't live 200, 300 years ago. It's like, well, hold on. We, we had new slavery called Jim Crow. We had our, we had our grandparents' generation and I'm, I'm in my 30s, so my grandparents' generation their interracial was uh, marriage was illegal. <laughs> yeah. Not that long ago. So don't, don't, don't give me this bullshit that it's somehow 200, 300 years ago because it gets passed on and passed on and passed on. And yeah, it might look, yep. it might look more subtle than having people pick cotton for you. It might look more subtle than that. Right. I mean, like, of course, sure. No. I, I, no. I can concede that, but you know, when you're locked up for a nonviolent drug offense, let's say yeah. you get stripped of your rights. And, 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 and your constitutional rights. And so this is still going on. Like, so it's, it's not, this isn't 200, 300 years ago only. This is, it goes, it gets passed on, it gets passed on, it gets, it gets imbued with the thread of the culture. And you're right, Jamal, we need to own up to that. Uh, I mean, you yeah. Know. And, 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 you know, in World War II, like pri- prior to World War II, right around that time when it was happening, 
there was such after Pearl Harbor, obviously there was such distrust of Japanese Americans in the United States that mm-hmm. we rounded the, that I would say we as a collective society rounded Japanese folks up of de- Japanese descent and put them in oh, literal yeah. concentration yeah. camps. Like, like this is stuff that Hitler was doing in the ghettos. I mean, obviously we didn't kill them and gas them, but I tell you what, th- 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 that the starting points of that began to happen where we're round and, and, and most Americans aren't even aware of that. We actually rounded up Japanese Americans and put them in, in, in prison camps. And, and there was an acknowledgement. I think it was Ronald Reagan in his presidency in the eighties acknowledged the gross injustice of that and ended up paying giving, I think it was the folks who were descendants of, 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 of or, or people who even still alive. I think they paid him 20, I can't. I don't want to get the number wrong, but it was a number of money. It was a sum of money that the government paid them to actually acknowledge just the tragedy of that. And you know, I, I again, we can debate at the political spectrum uh, how that should be done, but there really needs to be an owning, a collective owning, because we've never. I can't believe we've never. Where it's 2019, and we've never, as a collective society, said this happened and it was wrong, and we're sorry. And there has been repercussions and the playing field is not even. So when white folks say, hey, the playing field is even, you're thinking as an individual and not as a collective society, not even. Yeah, and it's not here. This is the thing. It's what we're talking about. We're talking about this sort of systemic racism is that if you're white, you assume, oh, well, you know, we don't have slavery anymore. And why don't you guys still live in the past? Yeah, just we have to wake up. We have to recognize that uh, this is still going on. And and here's the thing. We either either make uh, make an effort to educate ourselves about it and to do something about it and, and to bring some healing and hope and change this. Or, or we're just, um, by our ignorance and by our silence, we're sort of enabling uh, kind of thing to continue. Um, you know, we have to, we have to be willing to even own up to our own part in this. Right. And, and, and maybe you're, maybe the part that we're contributing to it isn't, you know, we're not flipping people off and calling them the N word or whatever, but we are, um, silently going along with a system that favors us and keeps other people down and doesn't allow them. Um, and again, but this is again, the frustrating thing is because I've said this so many times, I've written blogs about this and I've conversations with people about this. And, and it's always white person that comes back to me and always pushes back and always says, but Keith, you know, is this really true? And, you know, do people really talk this way? And do people really act this way? And like, and they're the ones denying that it's happening. Um, it's, it's funny because I've never had anyone black or brown or, or, you know, somebody who's uh, from a minority come back to me. I don't believe in this. I'm trying to live out the the um, the label of of racist is used to derail conversations. Um, yes, it's a yes. I, I can I jump in? I want to. I, I definitely want to to address that because I think the labeling uh, using the word racist as an accusation is really not helpful. You know what I mean? Like it's just. It doesn't really help to say, oh, you're racist or somebody's racist. <laughs> um, it's just a word that gets thrown around a lot. I, I think there's there, it, it, we, I think the conversation needs to be, okay, are you aware of there are systems in the world that are racist, uh, have a racist kind of um, – they're colored through this lens of racism. But I don't know that people are inherently racist. E- even Even the hardened folks that are like – People say, man, you're totally racist. Like if you actually sit down and talk to them, you know, if a person of color would sit down and talk to them, I mean, they, they wouldn't be racist. I mean, they were very accepting of other people. There's a lot of fear of the unknown, you know. Um, I, I don't like to use that word racist, but I would say like you can have a blind spot 
all of us can have spots where we are going, oh yeah, I'm not really seeing something from the perspective of another. I think the really the, the way around this to get racially sensitive is to go, okay, how could how does that other person f- view it? How does that other community, other group, like you know, a white person who all you've known is what you've experienced, and then to assume that's the experience of everyone is racially insensitive for sure, uh, because yeah. it's like, yeah, that's not your experience, so of course you're not gonna um, you're not gonna feel that way, but. Um, so, so to assume that a black person has your experience, um, is actually racially insensitive, but I, I think we really do mm-hmm. a disservice by lumping people and calling people racist. And I even see it in our political discourse with, you know, is Donald Trump racist? People will say, well, he's a racist. He's this, that like, well, what is that going to do? So what if you win your argument that he's racist? So what does that do? Cause there's a lots of, there's millions of Americans that support Donald Trump and they're not racist. So are they, are are they racially, are people racially insensitive? Is the president racially insensitive? Well, I think you can make a case that the answer is yes, <laughs> but uh, uh, for sure. But like if, but again, we want to stop with the accusations because accusations aren't getting our people are, once you get in, they have to defend themselves when they're accused. And as soon as somebody defends themselves, you're now, you know, no longer in a conversation. You're now defending yourself. And that's not a conversation. Yeah. Well, and what I was thinking of was the, because, yeah. um, because I've been accused of this, myself. So I'm just going to lay it out there. Um, like whenever I will talk about theologically, I'll say, you know, when Jesus is, for example, um, he gives the Olivet discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are parallel passages. What is he talking about? Because some Christians want to say that, well, he's talking about the end of the world and the second coming and blah, 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 but he's not. So I will go and go through it step by step and explain them know what Jesus is talking about is he's the final prophet. Uh, to the Jewish people, he's warning them that if they don't repent of their ways and if they continue to seek uh, revolution against the Romans, they're going to be de- uh, destroyed and, and um, the temple is going to be thrown down and um, they're all going to be wiped out and it's going to be the end of the Jewish age. And by the way, that is exactly what did happen, right? And so when I so all I'm doing is explaining that, right? I'm just explaining that theological historical point. When Jesus says this, here's what he's talking about. And here, here's how it was fulfilled in 8070. This is exactly how it happened. And that's what it's about. It's not about the end of the world or the second coming or whatever. And then people will come back to me and say, Keith, now you're anti-Semitic. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, no. Uh, because I think what they're assuming is, oh, well, you're saying that either, well, this is what they've come back to me and said. Either, um, Either what I'm saying can be used by someone who is anti-Semitic to then say, therefore, Jews are bad or evil or, or, or worthy of being oppressed or whatever. Like, well, I guess maybe an, an anti-Semitic person could do that, but I'm not, I'm not advocating that they do that, and I'm not drawing that conclusion. So, but, so that, should that mean that I just don't say this at all because someone could? You know what I mean? It sort of, sort of boxes me into this thing of like, well, now if I, I guess now I can't ever answer this question again um, this way, because if I do, somehow I'm giving ammunition to somebody who doesn't like Jewish people. So, so that's the kind of thing where I've experienced it, where like, well, you, you kind of put me in a box where now like, I, well, I can't answer that question now. I, I'm not allowed to talk about this, um, which is kind of silly. Yeah, I think I think we can take we can take just about anything and use it for ammunition. I mean, just. Look at the Bible again. I mean, we we could we could come out one end and be the most loving, caring person who wants to tear down all div- 
dividing lines and or we can be the most bigoted hateful westboro yeah. baptist yeah. church member yelling yelling at at gay people and picketing yeah. weddings i mean um yeah it becomes it becomes a little tenuous when um uh when we, when we take that approach like well you could you could you could use anything for of fuel course. if if you're if, if you're looking right. for it you know? yeah and now at the same time i will i will admit um you know, so the, when someone brought this up to me, um, the, you know, my, it makes me more sensitive. So now when I do answer that question, I kind of go out of my way to say a disclaimer, right? Hey, by the way, everybody, Jesus was Jewish. All the disciples and the apostles were Jewish. Um, God loves people who are Jewish. He doesn't hate people. And we shouldn't either because of their ethnicity, whether they're Jewish or Asian or, you know, Hispanic or black or whatever. Um like this is not a racist, racial, uh, racially motivated idea here. This we know, and so like I, I kind of have to spend time, but I'm willing to do that because I don't want anybody to take this and turn it into sort of a, a bludgeon against people or to use it as an excuse. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm well, thankful. Yeah. To, okay, I'm aware of that, and so I want to avoid that. But um, right. and plus, as as you've mentioned, Keith, I mean, we all have blind spots, and I'm not saying that's necessarily one of your blind spots, but. But to keep in mind that we always yes. have them and that the things we say could be used and could be picked up and we might not even intend something, but we are being subtly racist or or bigoted or ignorant because we do. Uh, well, I think it, it, it uh, gives us a lot of, um, I think, freedom to understand that we have blind spots so that we're always working internally on what those might be and listening to yeah. other people be like, oh, I didn't even think of it like that. But thank you for bringing that up to me because I wasn't even aware you know? Yeah. Hey, um, I, the whole time we've been talking, I'm sorry, I've been, I was looking, I was trying to find uh, something that my friend Valerie Gowan said. Uh, she's, uh, she's African American and I love her so much, man. She has been a gift to me and uh, she's made some amazing observations on some of the threads that I've shared on Facebook and on, on my blog and stuff. And I, fi I found this one response that she gave to somebody I wanted to share, but it's so short. Um, because I, I was having a conversation a few months ago um, on Facebook about racism <clears throat> and um, uh, a guy came on, one of my friends came on who's white and he said, well, you know, there's reverse racism as well. I'm a white person. And one time I was at Walmart and I had a black person call me a honky and flip me off and, you know, say bad things about white people. So, yeah, you know, so there you go. It goes both ways. And I know what it's like uh, to experience this. And so her response to this guy was so good. Because it was so gentle and, and kind and, and respectful. And she said, you know, hey, I'm really sorry that happened to you. And, and you know, yeah, it does suck, doesn't it? I know what that feels like, too. I, you know, uh, so, yeah, I know that doesn't feel good. But then she said, but, but here's what I want you to ask yourself, you know. So you're saying that that experience you had one time when that one person called you a bad name because of your race and, and because you were white. Yes, it was bad. But, but just consider this. Have you ever experienced a situation? This is I'm quoting her now. Have you ever experienced a situation where there were laws stating that you as a white person were scientifically and mentally inferior? Uh, were you by law because you were white forbidden to vote, obtain an education, travel to certain towns after dark, uh, known as sundown towns, live in certain southern states as a free person, or live in the neighborhood of your choice that was affordable to you? Uh, were you ever threatened to be a thief because of your skin color? Were you as a teenager threatened with lynching because a black woman claimed you made advances toward her? Do police automatically assume you're a gangbanger because you're a white kid driving a nice car? Have you ever been barred from eating at any restaurants because of your skin color? Uh, do hospitals refuse to treat you because you're white? Did you ever grow up seeing anyone that looks like you 
Um, never seeing anyone that looks like you represented in popular media on television shows and things like that. She goes, these are all examples of actual systemic racism. It's systemic and universal, not about personal hurt feelings. And I love that response because, again, it's something that I don't think about, right? As a white person, I, I don't ever put myself in those shoes. Why? Because I've never experienced any of those things. My, and my family members, my grandmother, my grandfather never experienced any of those things. So I, I don't have that sort of uh, cloud hanging over me or that I don't, I don't swim in those waters. And so having someone help me sort of take off the, the, those glasses and, and clearly and go, wow, okay, yeah, that, that's real. You know I mean? That is, that is real. something I've never had to deal with. And it's a great point. And I, I just, my encouragement on this podcast, um, I know we're wrapping up here, but I, I would encourage people mm-hmm. to think as a healer, yeah. not think as an individual victim, because, you know, white people can take on a victim mentality very easily and say, oh, well, you know, I'm a, and again, that doesn't allow you to hear once you, once you feel attacked, I, I if you feel like someone's calling you racist, now you shift into victim mentality. Now you're defending yourself. You're not hearing. So what I would invite people, specifically white people, because I, I do think white people, um, need a perspective on this. Okay. Um, I just do, I just really feel like there's a perspective shift that needs to happen amongst folks, uh, who are, who are white. And again, it's not a problem that you're white, not at all. You know, <laughs> half my family is white. I get it. But I think what to think, to shift into mode of healer and as a healer, what you want to do, and this is what I do again, like I mentioned in coaching, you want to, you want to go back in time with somebody and sit with them in their point of trauma and this is what therapists do, but if there's a point to it, you sit with them in that to re- help release it. And so we want to think not as individuals, but as collective, what if we as a collective people can just participate, go back in time, realize the trauma of being r- literally kidnapped away from your way of life, you know, to put it on these ships taken, you know, stripped of your identity of your name, of your record, yeah. and then systematically kept as cattle for 400 years. And then all of a sudden someone says it's over and there's a, there's a stroke, you know, there's a war that's fought. Then there's a stroke of the pen that releases you and yet nothing changes on the ground. And this goes on another hundred years till like 60 years ago. And then there's, Mm -hmm. there's outcry. There's, I mean, let's sit with the trauma of that. And then, and then, you know, for, for generations of, 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 of people to feel completely insignificant and of no value. Like, let's just sit with that collectively in, in history and just witness it as a white person, just witness what that's like and the horror of it um, and feel it in your body. Just feel it. You don't have to like be become like this perpetrator and that you did it. And I'm not saying taking on any kind of uh, accusation for yourself. I'm not saying that I'm just saying, get present with it and feel it because it's real trauma. And it's still, even in the physical DNA of the descendants, it's here and the, the effects are real. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, it's still here. And how we heal it is by getting present with it and releasing it. And that's what's needed. Um, really, the I think white people have a have a privilege and have an ability to help heal a folks of color in this country because we have the ability to to acknowledge yeah. that as a collective, not as an individual, as a collective, we can yeah. do it. A lot of this has been so good, guys. I wish we can keep the conversation going, but uh, we got to wrap it up. Um, Yep. So thanks for having this conversation. I'm, I think this is a good way to kick off the quote unquote culture. What do we call it? The culture wars series. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, but we'll, we'll we'll carry the conversation on uh, you know on our Facebook group and all that, which Keith you you could tell the folks about. But I just want to um, 
let people know about two quick things. We do have a website, heretichappyhour.com, and we do have a, a Patreon uh, site. So if you love the show, you want to see it continue, you want to um, help us uh, continue to bring shows like like this one and give you a bunch of bonus stuff, which we'll record. And we have bonus interviews with uh, Sam Klein. We have bonus interviews with all of our guests or most of our guests. It's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of cool shit over there. So thanks. Yeah. And uh, by the way, if you are one of our Patreon supporters, thank you very much. You are eligible to join our private Facebook group um, called the heretic happy hour Facebook group. And um we have continue to have conversations over there about these podcast episodes. And we also have a, a second group. Yes, we have not one, but two Facebook groups. There's also one called the Heresy After Hours group. And that's one that's more wide open to discuss issues of deconstruction. Um, and we've also invited other podcast uh, hosts and listeners to join us there as well. So it's a nice big group to discuss topics like that. So we invite you to join us there as well. And I want to talk to you guys real quick about something called uh, Square One. So this is a 90-day transformational coaching program that I'm doing. Uh, This is to help people who want to move from deconstruction to reconstruction. And so, you know, when you you question your faith, you lose family and friends and fellowship. Uh, You also, it's not just the theological side of it. It's also, there's a a strong sort of emotional uh, side of it as well that you have to deal with that, that honestly, that I found. Nothing really addresses all of these things. So that's what we're going to be doing starting September the 30th. Um, I am only have only have 10 seats available. We're doing 12 total, but two were filled. So we have 10 seats available at the moment. And if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in, I would invite you to join me at Square One. You can learn more at bk2sq1.com. That stands for Back to Square One. bk2sq1.com. Oh. Yes, and I, I want to mention a, a program I'm I'm kicking off here in a, in in the, in the month of October. It's called the Awakening Workshop, and um, you know, as a life coach, I work with I've, I've worked with individuals, but um, what I'm doing now is I'm really transitioning into working with groups, small groups of people. But the, uh, I've discovered that they're in the area of personal awakening. So, like people. I really believe that life is meant to be lived when you're just fully awake and conscious. And in the process, sometimes we we get we get stuck and we keep hitting our wall. We, we feel like we have there's things we're hitting our head against the wall. And we're not moving forward in life. We just feel stuck. And there's patterns to that to the to the trauma that we were experiencing in our life. And if you're just tired of being stuck, um, I've developed this thing called the Awakening Workshop, where I take some foundational elements I do in personal coaching and really boil it down into like this five week program where we're going through the steps of awakening and there are steps i've discovered there are steps to waking up to your highest and fullest self and so if that sounds like something that you're interested in um i have a uh, the awakening workshop is a it's a five week and i'm capping it at five people so we keep it small but you'll be working with five other people and working through the steps of awakening if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in it's coming up in october you can um, message me on facebook or you can go to my website which is uh, jamaljavanji.com and uh, you can contact me through through my website and uh, just let me know that you'd like some more information about the Awakening Workshop and I'll get that info out to you. And also, <laughs> we are on iTunes. <laughs> so you can rate us and review us and uh, five stars only and good reviews. So do that if you haven't already. It really helps. That's right. And good things will happen to you. That. 